As a pastor, I find myself having a lot of conversations with people, and these conversations are different, and they are over different subjects and different topics, but right now, the conversation I'm having the most is about the world we live in, the world that we woke up in, the world that we're trying to make sense of. Because for a lot of people, it feels like this world, this day and age is weird. Maybe that's because of what's happening politically, and maybe that's because of like the relationship that we have with the church, and maybe that's just because we feel this sense of dislocation. Whatever it is, a lot of people are sensing that these are strange days. North Korea tried to launch a missile on its east coast and failed. This latest provocation comes a day after the reclusive state paraded their weapons during the grand-scale celebrations of its founder's birthday. Hepsini uluslararası televizyonlarda da gösterdik. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the series finale of the White House Correspondents' Dinner. My name is Hassan Minaj. Or as I'll be known in a few weeks, number 830287. Evening, we are coming on the air right now because President Trump has just ordered a military strike on Syria. My magazine said this weekend that we now live in a post-Christian America. They went so far as to say Christians now find themselves as exiles in their own land. In each of these conversations, there is three recurring questions. Where are we? How did we get here? And what do we do about it? And so today, those are the three questions that we're going to try to answer. Where are we? How did we get here? And most importantly, what do we do about it? How do we move forward? How do we make something good from this place? Especially as we think about that question in terms of the church. What does it look like for the church to move forward well. My name is Johnny Morrison, and this is The People's Theology, brought to you by Missio Day in Salt Lake City, Utah. There's this Canadian philosopher named Charles Taylor, who a while ago diagnosed our age as a secular age. Now, at first glance, that may not seem like a novel diagnosis. People have been talking about what is secular for a long time. And if you've grown up in the church or maybe with the college, you've heard that phrase before. But I think that most of us don't have the same definition that Taylor does when we're talking about what secular is. For a lot of Christians, the word secular tends to refer to culture that isn't Christian. So there is Christian musical groups, and then there is non-Christian musical groups. There is Christian art and non-Christian art. There is Christian t-shirts and non-Christian t-shirts. There's Christian books and non-Christian books, or secular books and secular culture. In this definition of secular, the primary thing that matters is that there is culture that is religious and sacred, and then there is culture that is other and secular, So that's the first definition of secular, but I'm not sure it's the most common one. The more common one is the one that you'll hear used in college campuses and in classrooms, and well, Taylor explains it himself, saying. Now, the secularization 
thesis, which was common in sociology a couple of decades ago, was roughly speaking that mod modernization brings about secularization. I mean, modernization is something that was broken down into a series of different developments that we're all familiar with, economic growth, uh, industrialization, higher education levels, science and technology, social and geographical mobility, urbanization, globalization, mass communication, were thought to have brought about in the West secularization. And that was generally understood in, in terms of two developments, that religion ceases to dominate pu the public sphere, public life, and so in one variant becomes privatized. The second development, apart from this moving religion out of the public sphere, was meant to be the decline of faith and practice. Now again, that is close to what Taylor is trying to describe, but it's not quite there. And philosopher James K.A. Smith describes why this secularization theory isn't quite enough to explain a secular age. That it doesn't make sense of the complexity of the age in which we find ourselves. Secularism does not do justice to the features of the secular age in which we find ourselves. My suggestion is that a secularist account of our contemporary age doesn't do justice to the peculiar longing and hungers that still characterize a secular age. Listen for the cracks in the secular. If the secular account of a secular age was true, then what we could expect is that belief would be non-existent, that we would live in an a-religious environment where people didn't even want to believe, or they didn't want anything. But what Smith is arguing is that it's just not complicated enough to explain the real world that we live in. In fact, I think he summarized it really well, asking one final question. I think the question that we need to ask ourselves if you want to understand a secular age is, why does it still seem haunted? So what is it that Smith and Taylor have in mind when they talk about a secular age? A secular society is a society in which we all experience the contestability of our belief. A shift to a secular society is a shift to a society in, what, in, in which the plausibility conditions have changed. For Taylor and for Smith, the issue is a changing in the conditions of belief. So, once upon a time, uh, belief in the transcendent was assumed. It was built into the conditions of society. Most people believed in God or some kind of transcendent other, and we based the answers to deep questions on that belief. But in a secular age, conditions have shifted, and belief has become contested. That doesn't mean that people aren't religious, or they don't believe, and they don't have some kind of supernatural leanings or transcendent inclinations, it just means that belief in God is one of many options. Because secularism has democratized belief, and now we experience the contestability of it. There was a recent Pew study where researchers began to interview millennials trying to identify their religious inclinations. And what they found is that millennials are not identifying more as atheists or a-religious people who have no acceptance of the transcendence or supernatural. Instead, millennials are claiming nothing. It's what researchers creatively dubbed the rise of the nuns. And it means simply that people are not wholesale rejecting belief, but they are doubting it. 
And that is the best way to understand what a secular age is. It is chiefly a doubting age. A time where truth claims are subjected to the pressures of doubt and called into question, where most of our friends and the people we love and live around are solid and amazing people who have different beliefs in us. Taylor would call this cross-pressure. Pressurizes our belief and leads it to be somewhat fragile. Smith would say that in this world, we are all doubting Thomas. So a secular age is chiefly a doubting age, a time where truth claims are subjected to the pressures of doubt and called into question. And here's where this matters. It began with religious claims. That's the first thing that we called into question. But it doesn't stop there. Doubt knocks at the door of every person and every institution playing the truth game. People still make truth claims, obviously. But doubt undermines our ability to evaluate them. With no agreed-upon epistemology, truth becomes tribal. Just look at our political climate. Each tribe has their own news stores, talking heads, and facts, or alternative facts. And it seems that regardless of the facts, the dial isn't moving one way or another. Now, there are some other interesting realities that emerge in a secular world. Because when truth and belief is contested, and then all of a sudden truth and belief become tribal, you find yourself living in a world that is, well, contradictory. Is that the essential character of our age is that it is an age of contradiction. That it is an age of contradiction. That is Dr. Greg Thompson, who's the executive director of New City Commons. And what he's noting is that the secular age is an age of differences, of contradiction, where on the one hand, you have had amazing accomplishments, amazing achievements, but those go hand in hand with some undersides of those achievements and abilities. The emphasis on reason brought education to people who had never had access to it before. And the emphasis on production led to the creation of unimaginable wealth for human beings. Advances in technology brought real agency to people who had been without agency, And the energy of self-governance opened up the possibility for individuals and for societies that had never been seen. We have to see that part of the light of this dream was real. And yet there were shadows that these early modernist architects did not see. Because the same Western culture that brought education to the world also brought forth some of the most destructive ideologies in the history of the world. And the the same productivity that brought unprecedented wealth to the world also created unprecedented economic inequality. The same technologies that promised emancipation have been used to enslave and to destroy millions of people. And the same self-governance that that offered opportunity to us, to individuals and communities, has created some of the most self-absorbed societies in the history of the world. And so yeah, the light was real, but the shadows were real too. Like the contestability of belief, this contradiction presses in on people or gives cross-pressure to the people who live within it. And so we, as those who are trying to navigate the pressure of secularism, have to deal with these types of cross-pressure. One example um, by philosopher Chul Han is that our society has moved from being one of should verbs, where we have this like 
social obligation, social honor, familial honor to achieve and do things, to a culture that is all about achievement and can't. Now this has led to some amazing accomplishments as we drive towards achievement, but it has also led to an increasing of anxiety amongst the people who are trying to navigate. Han writes, quote, that this cycle often culminates in burnout, follows from an overexcited, overdriven, excessive self-reference that has assumed destructive traits. The exhaustive, depressive achievement subject grinds itself down, so to speak. It is tired, exhausted by itself, and at war with itself, entirely incapable of stepping outward or standing outside of itself or relying on the other, on the world. It locks its jaws in its place. Paradoxically, this leads the self to hollow and empty out. It wears out in a rat race. It runs against itself." End quote. So, the world is a place of contested belief and a place of contradiction. But I think that there is one last thing that's helpful to understand about our world. And that is that it is a complicated place. A place that is constantly in flux, one that is shifting and moving and changing all of the time, which makes it actually hard to get your hands around. Author Tom McCarthy in his 2015 novel, Satin Island, presents this picture well through his protagonist that is simply known as you. And this character, you, is tasked by a multinational company to compile what they call the Great Report, which is a document that captures the contemporary global environment, the movements and moments all around. As an anthropologist, someone who is dedicated to studying people and cultures in their native lands, Yu spends his time flying across the world, observing, recording, and chasing down leads, trying to figure out this web of complexity. However, the task of trying to capture this current cultural mood becomes difficult if not nearly impossible, because culture is constantly in flux. It's expanding complexity beyond his imagination. And as Yu waits for a flight, he begins to see the hub of the airport is symbolic for our contemporary moment. It's not really a destination, but as a place in between, a transfer place. As he waits, his phone buzzes with text messages in his pocket, he gets emails, phone calls, he speaks with his girlfriend on Skype, all while surfing the internet, blurring the lines between where he is and where he's going. The complexity, the flux, the atmosphere of this airport creates in you a feeling of vertigo, tinged with a slight nausea. An awkward sense of things being out of sync, out of whack. It is no accident that the character is called you because you is representative of you and of me. People who are trying to interpret their world for meaning, but being overwhelmed by the sheer volume and number of options and information, struggling to keep our head around all of it, above waters in this abundance, what Mark Sayers actually calls super abundance. So our world is in flux, and that means it's constantly changing, and that change pressurizes us. It's another cross-pressure that we're trying to navigate and adjust to. You have doubt, contradiction, and change, all making this place the place that it is.
Now, the things that we have talked about today, the cross pressures that we experience in a secular age, these different things that, that push on us and move us, that is just the tip of the iceberg and really understanding the world we find ourselves in. But hopefully, these three big ideas are helpful as we begin to think about navigating the pressure of a secular age. Hopefully, they're helpful in giving us the, the path forward to understand why things are the way that they are. But it leads us to the most important question and the final question of the day, which is, so what do we do about it? Just like trying to understand our world, trying to understand what it is that we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to think and how we're supposed to navigate this world is complicated. And there's a ton of things that we could talk about, and probably in the weeks to come we will talk about it further. But maybe just to begin the conversation about what our role is and what we can do to navigate things, I will suggest three ideas. First, and this won't be novel, we talk about it almost every single week on the show, and it is probably the entire reason this podcast exists, but it is that we need to become a people whose imaginations are shaped by the story of Jesus. Now, it's important that we understand this is about far more than knowing truth. It is about saturating ourselves in it, lingering long enough that we start to see and actually live differently. Theologian Stanley Hauerwas says it this way, quote, It is the story of Jesus that gives content to our faith, judges any institutional embodiment of our faith, and teaches us to be suspicious of any political slogan that does not need God to make itself credible, end quote. It's about staying with the story long enough that it changes the questions that we ask about the world. I think so often we identify more than anything else by political affiliation. Actually, a recent study came out and said that in America we do identify more by our political affiliation than anything else. And I think in large part that's because our politics have offered us a story to live into. One that is actually more compelling than the story of our faith we've been handed. It gives us better answers to deep questions, better solutions to hard problems, and even a hope to believe in. And as a young person, I totally get it. And there are certain moments where I am drawn to the political narrative of the party. But I think at the end of the day, it's shallow, which is why we need an imagination that is shaped by Jesus' actual story. Not one that we just heard or that was just handed down to us, but his actual story, because it is bigger than our politics, it's bigger than the world that we live in, and most importantly, it offers us a better world to move towards. Second, and I think this is directly shaped by being a people of the story, we need to be a people defined by reconciliation. It is so easy today to be critical of other tribes and other truth claims and to throw rocks at the people that are on a different spectrum than those, especially when those claims verge on what we dub as conspiracy. But what I've learned is that most conspiracy theories and most things that we would dumb irrational, they come from a place of fear and confusion. Our world is complicated. And it's often easier for us and for other people to explain the things we don't understand with simple answers. That may not make it right or true, but 
but it does make it fearful. And it should give us pause on how we respond to that. And the question is, how do we deal with fear? And how do we deal with those who believe fearful things? Especially when they're our friends, family, and neighbors. And yes, it is with truth. But it is truth in love. Truth dispels all fear. And you'll notice it rarely lectures. So we need to confront fear with mercy. Which means we need to be a people of love and a sound mind who are not driven by our own spirit of fear. Now, how do you be a people of reconciliation? Well, I think it happens through a practice, a practice of hospitality, of inviting those who are other and those who are different and those who are unlike you into your homes, into your places of intimacy and security so that you might show them mercy and so that they might in return show you mercy where you are fearful and irrational. See, reconciliation always moves towards, never away from. Third and finally for today, we need to be a people who define their citizenship by the kingdom of Jesus and not their national loyalty. In the New York Times recently, there was an article about how the Democratic Party is defining themselves in opposition, defining themselves in protest against the Trump administration and against the GOP. And I have to be honest with you, I think it's a nice sentiment. Part of me really resonates with what they're doing and why they're doing it and how they're doing it. But as I think about it in context of the church, what I realize is that we don't have that luxury. The church doesn't get to define itself by what it is against. Now, are there things that Jesus and his people are supposed to be against? Yes, totally. But Jesus was chiefly defined by his mission to reconcile all things to himself, by his incarnation, by the fact that he moved towards the other. And as his people, people who claim to be followers of him, people who claim to be citizens of his kingdom in submission to his way, well, we have to live the same. Instead of being defined by what we're against, we have to be defined by his kingdom, which is a kingdom of moving forward, of moving towards, of reconciliation, of hospitality, and of allegiance to something that transcends borders and walls and boundary markers and political parties. It's not about those things. We stand somewhere in the middle of all things under his reign, moving towards all fear on all sides in mercy. So how do we live and move in this world that we find ourselves in? Well, there's a lot that could be said. But it begins with us having an imagination that is shaped by the story of Jesus. Because without it, we'll never see the fullness of our practices, the fullness of our actions, or the fullness of our lives here. Things like hospitality will always seem shallow. And reconciliation will seem shallow. And moving towards the other in mercy will seem shallow because we'll never see that there is always a bit more going on than meets the eye when we see it through the lens of Jesus' story. Without a storied imagination, we won't see that our spaces are becoming sacred and our tables sacramental. Storied imagination transforms our fear into love and our lives and homes into spaces of reconciliation. 
And a storied imagination shows us that in this world, like every age and world before, Jesus is inviting us to be his people, which is an invitation to leave behind the politics of tribes and enter into the political imagination of the kingdom. You've been listening to The People's Theology, brought to you by Missio Day in Salt Lake City, Utah. For more information about the podcast or the church, check out our website at www.missiodayslc.com. Thanks for listening. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode or any of the ones in the past, or if we've been talking about things that are relevant to you, please go subscribe on iTunes, wherever it is that you listen to podcasts, and rate us. It weirdly helps. And uh, check back. We'll have another episode soon.